0: It's a delightful occurrence this morning and a precious privilege indeed that affords us this opportunity to gather. And certainly we're thankful for the marvelous blessing of health that we each enjoy and the opportunity that's given to us in other physical ways so that we can come together this morning. We're appreciative of our visitors and your presence with us today. We trust and certainly hope that you'll be encouraged and strengthened to know the way of the Lord more perfectly And similarly for we who are the membership here at Pippin, we hope that we too will be strengthened and edified in the most holy faith and look forward to even brighter days in association with one another as well as association with the great God of heaven. We have been, as we certainly can remember, involved of late in a series of studies considering the Holy Spirit, at least on the Sunday morning hours, and we'll continue that series of studies this morning with installment number five. In fact, as you might have noted in the bulletin, The Holy Spirit Part 5 is the title I've given to the lesson today. Certainly one could appreciate that those places from whence we have come and that have allowed us to arrive at this point have been majestic and tremendously helpful. In that opening lesson, did we not appreciate the importance of the Holy Spirit, the role that He plays in the recognition of all things divine, specifically that He is a divine person, Not merely a force, an influence, a feeling, or an emotion, but rather an actual, animate, divine person. In the second lesson, we begin to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the avenues of creation as well as in the revelation of divine truth we should be specifically thankful for the Holy Spirit's work in that act of revelation so that you and I could come to know the realization of the truth of God implanted into our life and thereby live in compliance thereto so that we could one day live in heaven forever. In the third lesson, we looked at two especial phrases that occur in the New Testament. On the one hand, we saw the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we also saw the baptism of the Holy Spirit and found that both of those things were related to and exclusive to first century efforts and days miraculous in character. Last week, we looked at the gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit and saw that that first century marvelous working endowed those individuals by the imposition of apostolic hands that they could perform things no longer possible be it prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, or faith. We also saw the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a subject that has caused no small amount of difficulty and confusion, but we readily saw by textual consideration that the Spirit dwells within us by the power of what the Word is He has revealed. And we implant that into ourselves and do that which the Spirit has taught. We are those in whom the Spirit dwells. We continue in a way that idea, that series of studies this morning, by looking at the Holy Spirit's relationship to the church. Certainly that questions the Spirit's relationship to you and I as the collective body of believers here at Pippin. What does the New Testament say about the Spirit's work through us and for us? may I submit that we consider a journey this morning in which the text of the Holy Bible will help us understand that more thoroughly and more fully. With regard to the Holy Spirit's work in the church, I have chosen to divide the lesson into two parts. And as we look at the first part, let's be a bit more general about asking some things that the Spirit does with us, through us, and for us. And then in the last part of the lesson... Let's specifically focus on the subject of prayer. A moment ago, we prayed together collectively. In fact, we will ask some questions about what does the New Testament teach concerning the Spirit's work in my prayer life and in yours. But first of all, in terms of the general work of the Holy Spirit, one of the things that we come to appreciate concerning the actual spirit of man is that that spirit inhabits this physical body, at least until the time of death. In James 2 verse 26 we read the interesting text that defines for us what death is. Is it not there said of us, for the body without the spirit is dead? We know that you and I are immortal spirits, and that spirit again dwells in and inhabits this physical body, until the time of my demise or the time of my death. At which point that spirit has departed the body, leaving the body behind as that which is dead. Might we ask about the Holy Spirit this morning? It is true that the New Testament teaches that that Holy Spirit too dwells in a body. Now it's not my physical body per se, literally as we learned last Lord's Day. It is rather a spiritual body. The Holy Spirit dwells in Christ's spiritual body, the church. That part, in fact, is laid forth for us to consider, isn't it? In that very text that Brother Colonel read a few moments ago. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, on that occasion the inspired apostle therein said, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? That church in Corinth was the temple of God, and the verse went on to say, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. The Spirit thus dwelled in that spiritual body in Corinth, the church of Christ in the ancient city of Corinth. Is it any different in the modern-day congregation here at Pippin? Isn't it true that the Holy Spirit thus dwells within us and permits us and enables us to accomplish the marvelous and grand works of Christianity? As we have previously noted, the Spirit has informed us through the revelation of the Word the things that you and I should be doing, the kind of lives that we should be living, the types of works in which we should be involved, and the great promise and destiny afforded to those that are faithful members of that body. It was to that very organization and similarly in the ancient city of Corinth that again Paul said, you are the temple of God. That was said twice in the verses that we just read. Is it not an incredible consideration that you and I today are the emissaries and ambassadors of heaven on earth? If God's work is to get done, you and I must be the ones to do it. If His Word is taught, you and I must be the ones to teach it. If examples of godliness are set, you and I must be the ones to set it. God does not artificially and specifically empower individuals in ways that He did in the long past. He called Jeremiah and Isaiah specifically and gave them His Word and they proclaimed it. Today He challenges all of us in one form or another, to use our talents to do the same. He doesn't come to me like he did to Paul and teach me the gospel, Galatians 1, verses 10 to 12, apart from my studying it. And the same is true for you. We each, thus, are that given grouping of individuals in which the Spirit of God dwells. Notice some uh, characteristics that lead us to appreciate the thoroughness of that idea. Every single work of the church, as we're about to study, is accomplished through the agency of the Spirit through the performance of the Word. Consider evangelism. When we preach and teach the blessed news of the gospel to an individual who is in sin and who is apart from his or her maker, are we not following the impulse of the Spirit? In Acts 8, verse 29, on that occasion when Philip joined himself to the chariot of that Ethiopian nobleman, it specifically says, the Spirit said to Philip, join thyself to the chariot. The Spirit was the active agent behind Philip's message of evangelism to that Ethiopian eunuch. But consider yet other examples of that same idea. In 1 Peter 1, verse 12, in a text that is movingly compelling... The inspired writer there said that when the gospel is preached, it is preached through the Holy Ghost. The Spirit is what then empowers and demands and encourages us to proclaim that good news of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, When the gospel came to Thessalonica, how did it come, Paul? It was not in word only. He said it was in word by virtue of assurance in power and in the Holy Spirit. Thus, it is a wonderful thing to consider that when we preach the truth to someone or come or strive to help them see the importance and urgency of the gospel, we're following the impulse of the Spirit as He has taught in His Word. But what about edification? In 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14, the Spirit there specifically said that those spiritual gifts were given for the purpose of the edification of the church in Corinth. Today, is it not true that the skills that God has given to each of us, the specific talents that are ours to perform, are to be used for the edification of the body? 1 Peter 4 verse 10, in fact, sets that forth for us in clarity and also in power. Thus, when we edify one another, be it by activities associated with what often takes place in the spring or fall outside here in, 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 our, in our lawn, or whether it be the other words whereby we encourage each other, the impulse of the Spirit through the Word that He has given has been an instrumental factor behind it. What about benevolence? Was it that, it, that very Spirit who said in Galatians 6 verse 10... As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. The Spirit wrote those words. Is that not an impetus or an encouragement for us to appreciate that our hearts ought to be touched with the difficulties physically of others? To say all of that, I believe, is to lead us to see the Spirit is certainly involved as we consider the day-to-day operation of the work of the church. Perhaps yet another example. The Holy Spirit is actively involved in the promotion of unity in the church. Unity is in fact a great problem amongst the religious world, isn't it? When various and sundry things that are in fact distinct and different and even mutually exclusive are taught and encouraged there are individuals that teach a different plan of salvation, different things to be done in worship, different activities which the church ought to sponsor. There seems to be great disunity rather than unity, but yet wasn't it the Spirit who said, ye are all baptized into one body by the Spirit? 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. Wasn't it asserted of us in Ephesians 4 verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Whose unity is it? It's the Spirit's unity. The Spirit, thus, has a grand desire, as does both the Father and the Son, for all those who would believe upon the Father and the Son to be one. And the New Testament, as the Spirit encourages, does assert that idea. If only humanity could come to appreciate the unity enjoined upon all the believers in God and all the believers in the Son in the next three verses, starting from that Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. The following three verses present still to this day the grandest platform of unity to be found anywhere. For there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul, might we ask, how many faiths are there One, he said. Paul, how many baptisms are there? He said, one. Paul, how many bodies, that is to say, how many churches are there? One. And yet we see a plethora of religious organizations upon the earth, all the while the Spirit said, that ye all may speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment." To quote a part of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. The Spirit thus urges unity. Might we appreciate thus that that great teaching and that great desire on the part of those who are the believers in the Scriptures carries forth that belief by virtue of the teaching of the Holy Spirit. To say all of that is perhaps to even say this. Even the leadership of the church is set forth by virtue of the Spirit. Please revisit with me that 28th verse of Acts chapter 20. To those elders of the church of Ephesus, Paul said, Take heed unto yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Might we ask, Who thus enjoined and appointed the appointment or those elders of the church in Ephesus? Paul said the Holy Spirit did it. You and I as we thus make selections of men who've been placed before us to serve as elders, when we make comparison of their lives and the other aspects thereof to the qualifications in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, we are allowing the Spirit to guide us and to make the appointment and the selection of those men to be our leaders. The Spirit is thus actively involved through His Word in every single aspect of Christian living be it individually as Christians or collectively as the church in a given location. In Galatians 5.25, to perhaps point more clearly to that individual daily living as Christians, it was an interesting statement there by Paul who said that those who live in the Spirit should walk in the Spirit. It's frequently the case that the word walk is employed in the Scriptures as a description of one's conduct, as a description of one's lifestyle. Ephesians 4.18 perhaps points that out, for there the word is used in precisely that way. And so the question becomes, day by day, if I am a Christian, and I proceed to thus by the teaching of the New Testament, have the indwelling of the Spirit within me by virtue of His Word, What will that mean? May I submit that I shall, in fact, exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. That fruit is listed for us in Galatians, the fifth chapter, beginning in verse 22. And thus, as a Christian, I should expect that I would manifest these fruits in my life. And thus, there is a good question for me as well as for each of us to ask. Does my life exhibit these fruits? Or might I be dead in one way or another spiritually? In the same way that that orchard tree, if it bears no fruit, we anticipate that there's a problem with it. There may need to be a special fertilization, especial other work with the ground to encourage it to be productive. Might we say, if my life does not exhibit these? Maybe there's a special need for work by virtue of prayer or work by virtue of other implantation of the work in my heart so that I could, in fact, bring forth these fruits. Let's list them and notice the Spirit's work in bringing them about. Again, in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 22, these fruits of the Spirit are especially listed. The first is love. Do we not read in Romans 15 verse 30 as well as Romans 5 verse 5 that the Spirit does encourage love? There the reference is to the love of the Spirit. No wonder then one of the first fruits of the Spirit would be love. The love of God. The love of the Savior. The love of one's fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That brotherly love mentioned in 2 Peter 1 verse 6 does that kind of love dwell within my heart and yours? That is the first of the fruits of the Spirit that's there enlisted. Jesus taught in Matthew 12, or rather Mark 12 verses 30 and 31 that in fact the greatest of the commandments is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind and with all thy strength. And the second commandment involves the same idea, but there it's not love toward God. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Thus the encouragement of the Spirit with regard to love is a rather vital matter. It is therein that Jesus taught in John 13 verse 34, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. How will the community that's outside the nature of this building, how will they appreciate firmly and firstly that we are the disciples of the Savior by the love we have one for another and by the manner in which that love is exhibited and displayed? But not only love, note the second thing also shown in that listing, joy. Are you happy? We live in a world that's overcome with despair. There are those who, even before this economic difficulty began, currently in this land, psychologists and psychiatrists are doing a booming business because of those overcome with depression, those overcome with various sadness and discontent, various manners of dissatisfaction. And yet we read in Romans fourteen seventeen that the Spirit brings joy. In Christ, we should appreciate that our sojourn here is but for a while, a brevity, and having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. 1 Timothy 6, verse 7. That contentment that fills our heart is much like the wording we find in Paul's famous statement of Philippians 4, verse 7. He said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. You see, the Spirit brings a sense of rejoicing and joy As the word dwells within us and we have eternity with God to look forward to, all the cares and distresses of this life seem to pale in comparison to the great joy that awaits beyond. Paul used that very set of words, didn't he? In Romans the 8th chapter, verse number 18, I reckon, he said, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The glory that shall be revealed in us. All of that points us to the fact that the Spirit encourages us to be a rejoicing people, a happy people. Didn't the psalmist declare, Happy is that people whose God is the Lord. That happiness seen in Psalm 144 verse 15, and earlier in Psalm 33 verse 12, is a happiness that perhaps leads us to the next element in this list. Even apart from joy and love, what about peace? We also notice in Romans 14, 17 that peace also is offered and provided by the Spirit. Does your life have a sense of peacefulness and tranquility that in fact transcends the difficulties that this world so often seems to offer? Jesus had taught in John 16, 33, the world's going to offer you tribulation and nothing more. But we find that the Spirit, through the nature of the Word and the power of God, sets before us a hope of eternity that truly is filled with peace. Not only there, but fills us with that peacefulness here. We should desire to set forth that example of peace to others so that they can ask, how can he or how can she live a life of such peacefulness? Even in circumstances of economy or otherwise like this. Others will take notice and they will ask questions. It's then that we can be ready to answer to every man the hope that's within us us, with meekness and fear, 1 Peter 3.15. I'm reminded in terms of these first three of the next element that's in this list, long-suffering. The word means to be patient. The word means to have forbearance. That idea of forbearance means to bear with. Perhaps some of us would do well to work on our patience. It is something that's a temptation to be impatient far too often, isn't it? To say things without thinking, to respond in ways that are unloving, all because the haste of the moment seems to bring it to us. Patience. Jesus was that man of patience, wasn't he? Though there was so much turmoil around about him, here was a man who could walk on the tempestuous sea, and offer peace to those about it. And himself, he pronounced the calmness to that sea in Mark the fourth chapter. We also need the long-suffering character of patience. It's enjoined upon us, isn't it, in the fifth chapter of James, where there are the patience of Job is mentioned, and encouraged upon us to be patient like he. That matter of patience goes on, though, to make note to us about gentleness. It's interesting that two different words appear in this listing that seem to mean about the same thing, or at least it would seem so upon a first reading. Notice that this word gentleness actually in the Greek means moral goodness. An upstanding way of living in which one encourages and demands of oneself ethical, upright, moral living. It's very much akin to that word virtue. In 2 Peter 1, verse number 5. When we are there, notice that we are to add to our faith virtue. That word virtue means moral excellence. A life that is pure and pristine in that which it lives and encourages in in the lives of others. Notice, that's what gentleness actually means in the Greek here. Notice, though, that that word seems to relate to goodness, which is next. That word goodness seems to relate more to the idea of uprightness of heart, a heart and a lifestyle that seeks that which is genuinely recognized as being good. When you and I live in that fashion, we are living by the dictates of the Spirit. We are living by that which the Spirit has encouraged and instructed. The listing rapidly moves to its conclusion with the notion of faith. We noticed last Lord's Day morning that there was a supernatural faith given as one of the spiritual gifts. This usage of the word does not refer to that miraculous spiritual gift. This is that faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10:17. This is that faith that is encouraged upon us when the apostles said, increase our faith, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. When we thus involve ourselves in what the Spirit has revealed, our faith will blossom. It will grow. We are admonished to desire the sincere milk of the Word that ye may grow thereby. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. When we desire that sincere milk of the Word and allow that Word to involve itself in our life, we shall grow in faith. Our faith will mature. Our faith will reach heights of greatness. But that matter of faith leads us to notice that the last two are meekness and temperance. Meekness has to do with humility and humbleness of spirit. A realization that power is presented when one is humble. Meekness does not mean weakness. Just because a person is is meek does not mean he's weak. He has a conviction in spirit and in life to know that which is wrong and right, and in meekness, that is to say, humility, he does not act in ways that are arrogant and prideful, but pursues that way of right in a way that's meek and gentle and humble. Temperance means self-control. It is still the case that as Christians we must exert control upon ourselves. As temptations about us are brought to us by Satan, we're often encouraged to walk a pathway of evil and to walk a pathway that is not good. But in temperance, that is to say, in self-control, we safeguard our life by having the sternness to stay away from that which is wrong, to not follow that which we may be tempted to follow. That self-control reminds us that Paul even appreciated that thought, didn't he? In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27, he said that he needed to buffet his own body, lest after preaching to others he himself would be a castaway. May we understand that as the Spirit tells us all these things, it is certainly reasonable to understand now that we ought not quench the Spirit. To quote 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, we should thus not seek to put a damper upon the activity of the Spirit in our life, but with the talents and skills He's given us to employ it in all the ways the Scriptures authorize and to thus be a bright and shining light for the cause of the Master. This general work of the Spirit, I would submit, though, we can use to at least discuss the matter of prayer in the last segment of our lesson this morning. The matter of prayer. When one makes notice of the work of prayer, I suppose it would be reasonable to discuss first some of the things taught generally about prayer and then to ask, what is the Spirit's role in the avenue of prayer? The Bible tells us on so many occasions how powerful prayer really is. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And examples from James 5.16 abound. What about Elijah when he prayed that it would not rain and for three and a half years it did not rain? That's given as evidence of the power of prayer. Then is it not to be noted that when Elijah again prayed that it would rain, it rained? That's James's example of how powerful prayer is. But as we contemplate my prayer life and yours, Its realization is that it's the capability of God. That's the reason for the power of prayer. Prayer itself, just because I pray, or just because you, the power in it is not with Randy. And it's not with you if you submit your name to that same sentence. The power in prayer relies upon the one who is the one to whom those prayers are offered. When God hears, He in His omnipotence and in His infinite nature is able thus to act in great ways. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. To quote Psalm 55, 22. In that statement of Matthew 19, 26, didn't Jesus say that with God all things are possible? No wonder prayer prayer then is so powerful. And no wonder that some of the next things should quickly be noted by us. Why might various prayers thus seem to be so limited? Why might certain Christians seem to feel that their prayers are not very effective? I'd submit that there are a few points that might be made. First, could it possibly be that a person simply doesn't pray enough? That prayer is too infrequent in that person's life. Men ought always to pray and not to faint, the Lord taught in Luke 18.1. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul there said pray without ceasing. One of the difficulties might be a person does not approach the Father often enough. Maybe a second potential difficulty could very well be that vain repetitions are employed in the prayer. Meaning that a person simply prays out of habit, simply saying various things when truly the belief of the heart is not upon that which is being uttered. Jesus warned in Matthew 6 verse 7 about the fact that the Jews often employed vain repetitions and the Lord, in fact, stated a condemnation of that. When we pray, we should believe in what we're asking. We should have faith and confidence and assurance that upon our petition of these things, if it be the will of God, He will answer it. It takes assurance. Notice then that that leads us to see that a third element, could well very well be a failure to ask in faith. One prays, but it's just words emanating from the mouth or thoughts from the mind. One doesn't seem to have the belief in that which is being prayed. We read in 1 John 5 verses 14 and 15 that we, if we are to expect anything from God, we must ask in faith. We must have the assurance confidence that He's hearing our prayer and that again, if it be His will, He shall answer it. That notion of faith and its necessity in the avenue of prayer points us, in fact, to the fourth one. In James 4, verse 3, James said that you don't receive because you ask amiss. You ask for things that are improper, for things that are inappropriate, for things that, in fact, are not necessary. Maybe we should recognize ever so well that sometimes we can be guilty of the same. We ask amiss. It's on those occasions we should be thankful for the overruling providence of God that He does it to always give us everything we've asked for. Can't all of us think of occasions when we are far better now having not received something for which we once asked? We thought it was the best thing then. We thought it was the proper thing then. But in time we came to realize that He gave us a far better thing later. Perhaps that list could be closed by noting Sometimes, perhaps, one fails to ask in the name of Christ. It is the case that we're taught we need to ask in prayer through the name of our Savior. To say all of that points us to the realization that the Spirit does help us in prayer. Perhaps as we close the lesson, let's look at Romans the 8th chapter. And I'll read verses 26 and 27. Listen to the activity of the Spirit in our prayer life. Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Might I ask you briefly to consider some of the features and some of the aspects of that verse. It said again, likewise. Paul is making a point in comparison to some of the other things revealed in the verses in that chapter. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. That word infirmities means weaknesses, those things that would be related to failures. He says, the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. What kind of infirmities, Paul? Is it our physical ailments? When I have a sore hand, is it the Spirit that miraculously heals it? Not at all. That is not what the infirmities are to which he refers. He defines them for us. He says, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Paul was speaking about the infirmities related to prayer. We each realize that we are mortals. We are not infinite like God is. We are not infinite in knowledge, infinite in wisdom, infinite in perspective as God is. And for that reason, sometimes our short-sightedness no doubt means that our prayers are not what they ought to be. We don't know exactly what and how to pray as as we should. To be sure, many things we love to pray for, such as the character of thanksgiving for God's blessings, or the prayer that a dear loved one will come to know the gospel and obey it, that's a wonderful kind of prayer. But sometimes we may pray for other things, say, related to international affairs. And we, with the perspective of God's infinite knowledge, might not know exactly how or what to pray in that regard as we should. That's simply a fact of our own limitations. Paul said, it's in cases like that the Spirit helps our infirmities. Note again verse 26. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us, with groanings which cannot be uttered. Groanings which cannot be uttered. With various expressions in the heavenly realm, beyond the capability of human expression, the Spirit carries forth to God the things that we have not or are unable to say. And as the Spirit makes those statements on our behalf, the Spirit is uttering groanings for you and for me. It might be interesting to notice quickly in passing that when the word itself is used in that verse, actually in the Greek, it's himself. The Spirit, again, is a person. It's not an it. It's not a force. It's not an influence. As we see this avenue of the Spirit on our behalf, it's a wonderful testimony to the power of God and His love for us that the Spirit is capable of uttering groanings on my behalf and yours in regard to our prayers that are inadequate or insufficient in one way or another. How thankful we can and should be that these groanings are the heartfelt things of us, the Spirit's able to utter effectively on our behalf to the throne of God. Might I submit to you is that thought is an appropriate one to close our lesson this morning. We perhaps can summarize in words like this. We've seen the general work of the Spirit in the church. The things that we do and are able to do, the Spirit enables and encourages us to do them. But not only that, in terms of prayer, isn't it lovely to consider God's blessing by virtue of the Spirit interceding and carrying forth for us groanings which cannot be uttered? As we draw the lesson to a close this morning, it is that avenue of prayer I'd like to use to help us think about an invitation. You see, those who are not members of the body, those who are not Christians, if you will, we read in John nine thirty one that God heareth not the prayers of sinners. Friend, if you've never become a Christian, God hasn't made any promise of responding to you. You do not have that advocate with the Father. Might we state today that you could become a member of the body of Christ. If we could be of assistance to you and your obedience to the gospel, you need to hear the word and believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of the sins in your life, confess His matchless name as the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If you haven't done that, why, why delay? Will there ever be a better day than this one? There may not be any more days besides this one. If you have become a Christian, but you haven't lived faithfully to that calling, and you no longer are following the leading of the Spirit... Why not make a change in life today? Come back to your first love. We would be happy to pray for you that the Lord would forgive you the sins in your life. In fact, we'd be happy to do either of those things even now while together we stand and while we sing.